A true and pristine love. We tumbled out of the minibus, a bunch of city women. None of us knew a thing about horses, so we were all agog. Someone had set it up with a friend of a friend, and we'd all agreed in a flash. After all, it was so different from our everyday lives. Having gratefully mopped ourselves with cold towels and hanging on to our glasses of chilled lemonade, we were guided down to the paddocks. They'd put small seat cushions in the stands for us, which was too considerate. And they held large umbrellas over our heads, which was too funny, since none of us were the magnolia complexion type. The horses came out and were immediately the focus of attention. So unspeakably handsome. Shining coats, plaited or beribboned manes, and all that magnificent rippling muscle. Animal magnetism at its absolute peak. We couldn't help ooing and aahing. They tackled the fences and triple jumps with dauntless courage. But they also had the agility and athleticism to swerve and tack around tightly on the convoluted track. It was an awesome display. They leapt effortlessly over the fences and soared over the water jumps with nary a splash. We clapped and cheered and smiled our heads off. Our hosts explained all about bloodlines and sires and dams. These beautiful beasts had authenticated family histories all the way back to the flood. None of us knew our own ancestry that far back, three or four generations at best. But these animals were the sons and daughters of equine nobility. Their parents and grandparents had won more trophies than you could shake a stick at. It was a bit galling to be out-ancestried by an animal, I can tell you. Next, they put on a demonstration of dressage. I'm running out of adjectives to describe fantasticness here. We'd seen the raw power and energy of the horses in the show jumping, and now we saw their spinsterish coquettishness, elegance, and almost dance-like grace. It looked like the jockeys were just along for the joyride, as the horses knew exactly what to do and performed precisely and easily. Of course, these were different horses from the jumpers. Like us humans, some had a natural bent for this or that or for speed or some other. Watching them dance across the big dirt square with their mincing steps or rhythmic strides was just thrilling. And we sat there like goofs with big smiles on our faces. It was over all too quickly for us. We could have stayed much longer admiring those horses. But we were charmingly ushered along to the stables. I was expecting the smell of horse dung and hay and sweat and pitchforks and stuff. Very storybook, I admit. My dear... These tables were air-conditioned. Remember, each of these beautiful beasts was worth a king's ransom, 
and many of them had already earned that ransom multiple times over for their lucky owner. They were huge, huge money spinners and were pampered and cosseted accordingly. They were drilled and marshaled on the grounds like any other beast, but then they were cooled off and rubbed down and brought into this temperature and humidity-controlled haven. It looked like Hercules had just diverted the river through it, for it was clean as the proverbial whistle. No piles of horse dung, for sure. It smelt of hay and leather polish. We could see saddles and reins and bridles everywhere. The leather gleamed and the metal stirrups and bits glistened from regular buffing by a vigorous hand. The air was cool but not cold and some of the horses had their heads poking out of their stalls as inquisitive about us as we were about them. Each horse's name was inscribed above his stall and I was reading them casually while listening to the head groom. He was telling us about the precise mixture of fats, starch, protein and fibre that went into horse feeds. And then there were vitamin and mineral supplements. Who knew it was such a precise science? He reminded us that they were all highly strung professionals, not playthings to be petted and stroked. The horses put in their bit by nervously whiffling their upper lips and snorting and stamping and letting off high-pitched whinnies. I edged away nervously from one particularly insistent one. Bannister's baby, I remember. For horses always have such exotic names and stumbled blindly backwards into another horse. I remember the look of horror on the face of the head groom who was exactly in my sight line. His eyes were not on me, however, but on the horse I had backed skittishly into. It might have been humbling to discover how expendable I was in his worldview, but there was no time for that. His expression changed from horror to fear to amazement as I belatedly realized I was being cradled by the horse and then gently nudged upright. I was still struggling to manage myself, but the horse people had all gone silent and frozen and were staring at the scene with dangling jaws. I didn't know what the heck I'd done. I could feel that moist nose nuzzling the small of my back in a gentle kind of pushing way and so, I slowly turned and faced him, thunder's echo, and hesitantly stroked his smooth aquiline muzzle to say, Thank you. He batted his long, lashed, liquid eyes at me, and I felt like I was drowning. He was an ethereal, silver-grey colour, with a black, feathery blaze over his left brow a black muzzle and black socks low down on his powerful legs, and he was massively muscular. He hadn't been brought out that day, we were told later, firstly because he was a racer, not a jumper or a dressage specialist, but also because he had a notoriously bad temper. 
they never risked taking him out amongst untutored visitors. But this horse, as dumb beasts sometimes will, had taken it upon himself to prove them false. They were plumb awestruck to see how he took to me. It had been weeks before any of them had been accepted by him. He would snort and stamp and quiver his lips menacingly to show his big dangerous teeth. Never, quoth I, he is just a sweet darling. And to me, amazingly, he was. I can't explain why, but he had decided he loved me. And from such a fantastic fellow, I accepted it gratefully and with both hands. So there was a bit of brouhaha about that with everyone expressing their shock and awe and me basking in the glory of the moment. I'll never forget the magnetic connection I felt with him that very first time. The thrill of the whole bizarre encounter and the tenderness with which Echo had honoured me with his love. It's such a special, special memory that I will always cherish it. After refreshments in the main farmhouse, we trundled back onto the bus to go home and I secretly hugged that special little joy inside me to bring out and savour again later. So you can imagine how devastated I was to read in the newspaper a few weeks later that Echo had been kidnapped. I devoured every bit of press coverage and I cried for my beautiful horse. The general consensus was that he would never race again since his distinctive style would be a dead giveaway, but that he would probably be put out to stud to sire another line of super winners since his seed was guaranteed to fetch astronomical prices. Everyone laughed at me, moping over Echo. But none of them had felt the connection I'd felt that day, and so they couldn't know my anguish. To think that that magnificent specimen had been taken from those five-star stables to some miserable laboratory-like hovel, where he would regularly be milked for his powerful seed and would eke out his days practically a prisoner, never running free again, was like a dagger to my heart. So laugh if you want, I don't care. I grieved for him. Now, fast forward to the next December, when, as a treat, my husband and I were invited to the New Year's races by a remote cousin. We'd never been to the race course before, so we dolled up and went quite excited about the whole event. My hat had been the topic of everybody's interest for weeks. I'd finally given up hope of wearing a simple one and had given in and got myself a bit of net and feather that cost way too much for something so small. But putting it on made me feel très élégante. So perhaps it was worth the pretty penny I spent, after all. We arrived at the race course and went everywhere and looked at all the sights and smelled all the smells. The colour and razzmatazz, the horsey odour, energetic buzz in the air, 
and the crowds of stylish people. The knowledgeable cousin took us around to meet a few insiders whom he knew, and in that very equine setting, my mind was naturally filled with memories of echo. More so when I felt gentle nuzzling against my back. I was caught in a crazy vortex of deja vu by the old too familiar nudge, and my mind spun as I turned around. I could hear my heartbeat thundering in my ears as I looked at this horse. A beautiful, shiny black. No blaze, no socks. Massive, yes, and with those same liquid eyes. But black. It was some other horse. I stroked his long snout lovingly in memory of my dear, sweet echo. I was peremptorily called to account by the cousin and others. Someone had taken umbrage to my stroking the horse. I asked what his name was, but was angrily hustled and bundled out in a flurry without even the courtesy of a reply. He was just a stock animal used in training, I was told. My husband gave me a fierce look along the lines that I should have known better. I should have, yes, but it was so odd. I'm not a horse whisperer, so surely I could not expect to attract strange horses everywhere in this crazy fashion. What I had experienced with Echo had been quite singular for both of us, and this had felt exactly the same. It was uncanny. I was still being scurried along, the cousin hissing angrily at me about the head groom being furious. It could have been dangerous. He was a bad-tempered animal and they were all wary of him. But he was a good solid runner so they used him in training. The groom would have been in really hot water if the brute had bitten me. But anyone with half an eye should surely have seen that the big black horse was not remotely near biting me. So I became very suspicious. I kept thinking about it all day, but dared not say anything for the moment. The next day, I told my husband everything over his morning tea and newspapers. We hadn't been married this long for nothing, so with a look of resignation, he agreed to help me. Could it wait a few hours, was all he asked. Later that morning, we looked up the horse farm we had been to, called and asked to speak to somebody about Thunder's Echo. We said we had possible information on his current whereabouts. That got us on the direct line with the owner, Toot Sweet, and I recognized his voice at once. I introduced myself and reminded him about Our Lady's visit and my encounter with Echo, and he remembered me right off. I told him what had happened the day before the race course. I said I knew the horse was black and not silver grey and that there was no blaze. But in my heart, he'd felt just like Echo to me. And my heart told me it was Echo, though I couldn't explain how that was possible. It sounded so lame and I apologised but I felt I just had to bring it to him. Well, you know what happened after that. 
It turned out to be Echo All Right. I learned that greys, as they are called, are actually black-skinned horses, with mostly white hairs, but also some black hairs, like Echo's Blaze. So dyeing Echo black had made for an easy transformation. The whole shady business was intended to have garnered more money than I can even think of. And I had to beg to be kept out of the limelight. But finally, Echo was brought safely back to his rightful home and reinstated in glory in that splendid stable in a spacious stall with his name emblazoned over the door. He still runs and I still visit him. Not because he's faster than the wind or famous or more handsome than Adonis, but just to talk to him and stroke him and be nuzzled by him. And the inexplicable love we feel for each other is a rare and precious thing. In its own way, it's a very true and pristine love. And that was my first case. And that's how I became a detective. Which is what you asked me and how this whole story got started. And now you have your answer.